Well, once again, welcome back, everybody. It feels great to be able to see you all here. It's so good to see some faces I haven't gotten to see in a little while. It's like a, it is a family reunion of sorts, so it is super awesome to be here together. It has been almost to the day, six months since we got to gather here um, as a church to worship together. It has been almost exactly 12 months to the day since we had our very first practice service in here last September 22nd. And so, man, we are just feeling celebratory and thankful and grateful for God's faithfulness to our church as we faced challenges that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we realize are so small. And we realize, man, how good and faithful and how gracious God is to us. Um, but it fills us with joy just to be able to be here together um, as a family. If you brought your Bible this morning, you can open up to John chapter 2. If you need a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible, and we've got some back there at our welcome table as well for you to take home. Um, but we are continuing through a series that we're calling Follow Jesus. Nothing more important than to give our lives to follow Jesus. Everybody's going to follow something we believe the best, the most important, the only real choice is to follow Jesus. And as we walk into John chapter 2 this morning, what we are going to see is one of those reasons on display, and that is Jesus who is going to do this miracle of changing water, literally changing water into wine as a part of a moment of celebration at a wedding. Um, I love weddings, right? We all love weddings because of the celebration and all, all the wonderful things that happen at a wedding. From a very young age, we tend to grow up thinking about a wedding or planning a wedding or idealizing and imagining what that wedding is going to be like. Um, as a pastor now, I've been an ordained pastor for almost seven years, so I've gotten to officiate several weddings now and kind of get that insider view of what it's like behind the scenes. Um, if you haven't been married before, what it's like behind the scenes is it's crazy and it's hysterical. Um, it begins before the wedding day. It begins before the rehearsal. It begins with something that we like to call premarital counseling. Anybody done premarital counseling before? Pre yeah, okay, good. Um, premarital counseling is hysterical uh, from my vantage point because usually two things happen. The first is that wonderful couple Ah, they love each other so much, and they are genuinely convinced in that moment before they get married that their uh, fiancé really doesn't have any issues, really doesn't sin all that much, really, they're basically perfect. And you get to hear this joy and this happiness overflow. All right, and then the second thing that sort of happens as we have this conversation is you realize that this couple genuinely believes together that all of the disagreements that they're going to have have really already been settled during the dating phase. It's really, it's, it's easy from this point on. And you just get to revel in the reality that you know is coming, that there is a blessed, joyful sanctification that's going to take place as those two become one. But after that premarital counseling moment, we get to my second favorite moment, which is the rehearsal, the wedding rehearsal and, and the dinner and so you get together and you practice and you say, okay, you're going to stand here and you put a little X down on the ground to mark where you're going to stand. And this is where you come in. This is who you're going to come in with. You're going to say this. This is when you're going to pull out the ring and here's how you're going to put the ring on their finger. And the practice always goes great. And you work through the questions. And then the big day comes and the excitement settles in and the nervousness settles in. And every human being that's a part of that wedding ceremony, recall is gone. Memory, logic, reason is gone. 
and it's just been replaced with excitement. And it's a beautiful, chaotic thing that happens, but ultimately, they wind up married at the end, and so it's okay. You know, you get good advice. You get advice like, the, the really good advice, don't lock your knees. Don't lock your knees. If you're going to be standing up there for a while, don't lock your knees. Kind of move the knees around a little bit because inevitably what will happen is what happened to me when I was a ring bearer in a wedding as a child when we were in a church and it was August and that church had no air conditioning system and the pastor decided to preach a 45-minute sermon. I got a little shaky and I did what I shouldn't have done and I locked my knees and thank God one of the groomsmen saw me about to tip over and collapse, and he lovingly guided me to a seat to have a rest until the sermon was complete. But that was good advice. Now, another piece of good advice that I learned that day was don't preach a 45-minute sermon in August in a church that has no air conditioning. So if you haven't gotten married, got a couple of important bullet points to think about there when you do the wedding planning. Right? You have the wedding planning phase, and in the wedding planning phase, you're thinking about what are our colors going to be? What kind of tablecloths do we want? What kind of silverware do we want? What do we want our favors to be? Right? And that's a fun phase as well. You do all the planning for this perfect and magical moment. And if you're like Alana and I, the day before Hurricane Sandy spins off, off the coast of Cuba and hits our outdoor wedding and the eye passes by just as we are saying I do, and all of that perfect planning and all those little favors, it goes crazy. But... You know what we learned and experienced, everybody who was there, some of you guys were there, it didn't really matter, did it? Because the joy and, and the celebration that was taking place because the two of us, as Scripture says, the two were becoming one. And our family was there with us and, and those friends who had been a part of our life at every stage were there with us and we celebrated. And as we got hot and sweaty and, and wet from the rain, then we had the world's most amazing hurricane, post-wedding, dance party of all time as we just celebrated together. And we realized all the more that it was, it was about the joy of that moment. And it was okay that there was a hurricane outside, sort of like this morning, as it sort of comes and goes. Weddings, they're joyful moments. They're powerful moments. They're significant moments. And Jesus is going to teach us something about himself in a wedding, even in the Scripture. So let's read now John chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 that give us this story. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Listen to verse 1 and forward. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, 
Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's take a moment and let's pray together and bless God's word. Father, thank you that we can be together. Thank you that we can humble ourselves to come under your word. Lord, teach us, fill us with the joy that comes from knowing Jesus this morning. Lord, we thank you so much. We celebrate so much because of your goodness and your faithfulness to us. Whether we worship here or outside or wherever we may be, Lord, we thank you that you are always with us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Three applications from God's Word this morning from John chapter 2. The first is this, live in the joy of His gift of life. Live in the joy of His gift of life. In that culture, the biggest day of your life was the wedding day, was the wedding celebration, especially among the poor. And in that culture, in that community, many were poor. And so this moment was all the more valuable and special to them. One of the reasons it was such a big deal is that in that culture, and I love this, the wedding was not a day activity. It was a full week or more that involved the wedding celebration and the the wedding feast it had an official start day. It would begin on a Wednesday, and then the feast would begin. So after the ceremony itself would take place, there would be basically a massive evening torchlit parade in which they would carry bride and groom to the groom's house, and then the actual feast or the wedding reception, as we would think of it, would begin, and it wouldn't end for a week. And they literally viewed that time. They basically said that that new husband and wife were king and queen for the week. And so they would bless them through what essentially was an open house with gifts and celebration for the week. But this wedding celebration, this wedding feast had a problem, one really big problem. And Mary says it with deep distress in her voice. She says to Jesus, they have run out of wine. Wine was a a symbol and an experience for them of celebration, but particularly of joy. It was a symbol of joy. It was a symbol of abundance. It was a symbol of fruitfulness. Not that they are getting hammered together, but that they are enjoying the joy of being together and celebrating. Look at Psalm 104.15 that gives us a little picture into it. It says, wine to gladden the heart of a man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Isaiah 55.1 says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. See, this was a very real problem because unlike us, they couldn't just go around the corner to Walgreens and swipe the visa, right? If they were out of wine, they were out. Uh, At a minimum, this was going to be a huge awkwardness and an embarrassment to this host family to have run out of wine. It was such a serious matter in that culture that there are records historically that say that people could actually be sued just for running out of wine at the wedding feast. Okay, so this is a big problem that they have, and Jesus is going to step into this problem. Lacking wine 
Being out of wine, it is a physical picture of a spiritual reality that is taking place. It is a physical picture of what it means to be without Jesus and to be without joy of knowing Jesus. No wine is no joy because you have no relationship with God. And we know this partly because what John, the writer of this book, tells us is that he is introducing us to the first of seven signs. Signs or miracles. It is the same word there in Greek, a sign or a miracle. And he is going to use these physical miracles to convey to us important spiritual realities. The wine had run out, meaning that for Israel, their joy had run out because their relationship to God had fallen apart over the centuries. They had walked away from God more and more. But knowing Jesus would bring for them and does bring for us today a joy that is not temporary, a joy that brings eternity of spiritual connection with God the Father. Scripture says this in John 15, 11. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That you may have joy overflowing, joy in abundance. See, because Jesus not only has the power to change water into wine, he has the power to bring a spiritually dead person to life. And he is showing us that through this physical reality, he is manifesting the glory of a deeper and greater spiritual reality. She noticed one other thing here. Jesus seems very comfortable, very at home with people who are filled with joy and having fun and enjoying being together. And I think for some of us, myself very much included, when the world sees us as believers, they sometimes are not able to see our joy. Or if they look at us, sometimes they're not able to make the connection to what joy that we have in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, even when we struggle, even when we go through difficult things, there is a joy that surpasses happiness or sadness, that says, I have and I know the Savior of the world. And when someone who has not yet experienced that joy sees us, our prayer and our goal is that they might then be able to, to ask, that they might notice that something is different and that there might be that opportunity for us to share our story, to share our testimony, to say, this is what Jesus has done for me. Whether times are good or times are bad, I'm filled with joy. I'm filled with hope. Because Jesus has brought me to life. He's given me eternal life. Live in the joy of his gift of life. Number two, we get from this story. Number two, live in the joy of his transformation of dead religion into grace. Live in the joy of that transformation, which takes place in the middle of this story. Look again at verses six through eight. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Remember what Jesus first says. He says, my hour, my time has not yet come. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, asked Jesus to do something about the lack of wine. Mary understands to some degree or another at this moment that Jesus has the ability to fix this 
problem. And Jesus says to her, by the way, Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? In English, that sounds very rough. It almost sounds disrespectful. In Greek, it was a very normal, respectful, even courteous way to address a mother or any woman was to speak to her and say, woman. In fact, he uses that exact same address when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he looks at his mother Mary and he looks at John who is standing next to her and says, John, please take care of my mother. He addresses her even in that moment as woman. And so we know here the the affection that is being interacted here. So do not let the English there mislead you. And Mary understands it too because her next thing is to tell those servants to follow whatever Jesus tells them to do. Jesus says it's not yet time for him to openly reveal or demonstrate who he is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. But at the same time, he is not willing to ignore their problem. And so he is now announcing that this will become the first day, the first moment of his public ministry. He's now going to begin to move in miraculous ways to show who he truly is. And so this wedding celebration becomes the official launch day for the ministry of Jesus. And John, the writer of the book here, is using this moment to open what is the second major section now of the book of John. And it takes us from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 11, and he's going to give us now seven different miracles or seven different signs to show us who Jesus is and to show us why we ought to follow Him. He's going to show us healing a royal official's son. He's going to show Jesus healing a paralytic at the pool. He's going to show Jesus feeding 5,000. He's going to show Jesus walking on water. He's going to show Jesus healing a man born blind, and He's going to show Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. But He begins now by saying, fill the water jars And those water jars, we're told from Scripture, were there for a specific reason. They were there for ritual purification. If we jump over to the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 7, there's a couple verses that give us a better picture of what those jars were there for. They were there because the Pharisees dominated Jewish culture at the time. And the Pharisees were obsessed with things like washing things like being ceremonially clean. They were obsessed with adding to the words of the Old Testament additional laws that they thought were important, and at the heart of their issue was this. They did not believe that they could find relationship with God unless they earned it. They did not believe that they could find relationship with God unless they did everything right, and they began to sink deeper and deeper as individuals and lead their culture into a self-justifying mentality where I will be a good enough person for God to desire me. And Jesus is going to turn that water into wine. He's going to flip that completely on its head. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary says this of what's going on in the Jewish culture at that time. He says, Judaism still existed as a religious system, but it ministered no comfort to the heart. It had degenerated into a cold, mechanical routine, utterly destitute of joy in God. Israel had lost the joy of their espousals. 
Israel had lost the joy of their wedding relationship with God. They had lost understanding, insight, and the joy of understanding that God would reach out to them, that God would save them, that it is by God's grace that they are saved, both Old and New Testament. They no longer had relationship with Him. They were just going through the motions. And maybe you've been there as well, where you find yourself in a place where you just feel like your relationship with God is just going through the motions. Or you slip into thinking, God would not possibly want, want me or want to love me. I have to do this. I have to earn this. I have to be good enough for God to want to have anything to do with me. But Jesus is changing the water of a ritual purification into the wine of new salvation. The old self-righteous rituals were dead, and he's filling the jars with new life. Guys, for us, the water of our failed self-efforts and our failed self-righteousness and our broken efforts to keep the law that we cannot keep, Jesus has changed that water into the wine of grace, into the wine of forgiveness, into the wine of Jesus' death and resurrection to save us because we could never do it ourselves. And how exactly does he do it? Well, we're told that these jars held 20 to 30 gallons each. Jesus didn't just bless them a little bit. Jesus didn't come just to give us a little bit of grace and then you kind of take it the rest of the way. This is 180 gallons of wine. There was no wedding celebration that was going to be able to finish that off because Jesus' grace, Jesus' gift of salvation overflows to abundance. This new husband and wife, they are set for life. You are set for life by God's grace. When we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, it is His grace that saves us. It is His grace that sustains us. It is His grace that promises us eternity in heaven, in His home, with Him. Hebrews 9.12 puts it this way. How did, how did Jesus do this? How did He bring this to fruition? Well, it says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See, what the Old Testament had always been preparing, Jesus here now at the beginning of the New Testament establishes, completes, perfects what was always coming. This is not plan B on God's part. This is God's plan A from day one. When Jesus leads the very first Lord's Supper that we'll take in a few minutes, he picked up a cup and he said, this wine is the new covenant in my blood. By his death on the cross, by his blood, we can be saved by grace. He took the punishment that we deserved to experience. So live in the joy of his transformation of dead religion into grace. Amen? Number three and finally, live in the joy of the bridegroom's return. This is a wedding. Look at the very end here, one last time, verses 9 through 11. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, they knew where it came from, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
It's a wedding. It is not coincidence that Jesus' first miracle, Jesus' first sign, is it a wedding because Jesus reveals himself throughout the Scripture, promised in the old and fulfilled in the new, that Jesus is the great bridegroom and that we as his people are his bride and that he will one day return to take us into his home where we will live and feast and celebrate for forever, where all of his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from every moment in our history will be gathered together as one family, he the bridegroom and we his bride. And it will be an unending celebration and feast, one in which we too are crowned as kings and queens, not for a week, but for forever because of what King King of Kings Jesus has done on our behalf. He is the great bridegroom who, among other things, has died to make us holy. That's why when the Bible teaches us about marriage, it explains it in terms of what Jesus has done for us. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. We read this as an instruction as to how to be married, and we ought to. But look at the foundation. Beginning in verse 25 of Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, that is us, might be holy and without blemish. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Jesus has come as the bridegroom for us. He's the great bridegroom who clothes us with the wedding garment of his own perfect righteousness and takes upon himself our filthy rags of sin. He's the great bridegroom who invites us into a wedding banquet of the Lamb. The book of Revelation ends this way. Look at Revelation 19.9. We sang about this. This is what it means. The angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited. You are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. I don't know about y'all, but in the 90s, I grew up singing a worship song that fits this moment perfectly. You guys know We Will Dance. This is a song by David Ruiz. I found out, didn't know, but it was written in 1993. And the chorus, we will dance on streets that are golden. The glorious bride and the great son of man from every tribe, tongue, and nation will join in the song of the Lamb. That is what the scripture here is promising. And the result, you see what the disciples, the disciples who had just begun to follow Jesus, this is the result. They saw his glory and they followed him in faith. They saw him take six jars of water and literally turn them into wine. And they believed in him as the Messiah. See, they were eyewitnesses. They saw the first, they saw all seven of his miracles or signs, and they knew enough initially to follow Jesus, but now they believe, they trust, and they give their lives to him. 
What about you? Have you seen His glory? And will you put your eternal trust and faith in Him? If you've never done that before, today is the day. Jesus, will you forgive me of my sins? I need my sins paid for. I I ask that my sins would go on your cross and that you would replace it with your perfect righteousness on my behalf. And believer, if you've received this wonderful gift, be reminded of the joy that you have been wedded to the Son of God. And it's not temporary. And He's not going to leave. He forgives you no matter what mistake you make. Not because you're going to do a really good job, but because His grace is that overflowing. Let's take a minute and let's pray together.